In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. In 1867, bishops of the Anglican Church around the world took steamships uh, from all over the globe and gathered together at Lambeth Palace, which is where the Archbishop of Canterbury resides, and met for the whole summer in what became known as the First Lambeth Conference. The Church of England, or as we call it, the Anglican Church, had spread all over the globe as part of the British Empire, and they were noticing at this time, uh, over several hundred years of this expansion, that uh, they were becoming separate, and uh, they needed a way to unify and to come together. And so they met for that summer, and because of the cost and the time that it took for travel, they decided that they would meet every ten years. And so uh, from then until now, the bishops of the Anglican Communion around the world have gathered every 10 years at Lambeth. They gathered in 1930 and they talked about uh, rules of divorce. And they gave specific requirements for it. You know, if they were talking about it in 1930, it's because it had become an issue during the teens and the 20s. And so uh, we know that divorce had risen exponentially during those decades, which sometimes people today forget. Uh, We like to think that everything has changed in our lifetime, that things are different in our lifetime, and like to think of the teens and 20s perhaps as some kind of a golden age. And uh, this is simply not the case. There was difficulty with marriage then, as there has always been. The bishops of the church said unequivocally, teaching what it is that Jesus teaches here in the gospel, uh, that the church does not divorce and that the church does not remarry. And they said that explicitly. And really there was no uh, great um, uh, surprise about that because there was no Christian church that uh, would have allowed for remarriage, not unless there was some uh, really extenuating circumstances. But of course, uh, what has happened over the subsequent decades is the church has more and more allowed remarriage, but allowed remarriage with uh, a kind of counseling, with uh, real work done on the part of the couple that is remarrying. And of course, uh, in my experience, people don't like to do this. When people are asked to come and do counseling before remarriage, uh, they think of it as being intrusive, they think of it as coming into their personal lives, and they're typically very uh, resistant of that effort. I think of it a little bit the way um, that I think of bankruptcy. Uh, bankruptcy is a tragedy. Nobody borrows money thinking that they're going to go bankrupt. They borrow money thinking that they're going to make money, thinking that their lives are going to improve, and because of happenstance or bad management, uh, they are not able to repay the debt, and they may have to go uh, bankrupt. It's interesting, when we look at it, what happens when uh, somebody takes out debt and is not able to repay it? They've stolen the money. Right? That's the way uh, the law looks at it. If I tell you I'm going to uh, borrow money and I'm going to give it back, and then I come back to you and say, no, I'm not going to give it back, I've stolen it from you. And that's the way the law for many years treated it. So if somebody borrowed money and did not repay it, we put them in what's called a debtor prison, right? And this happened to some of my favorite authors, Dostoevsky and Charles Dickens, uh, found themselves uh, having to flee the country at times to escape uh, debtor's prison. And our uh, our civilization has looked at that and said, that's no benefit to anyone. That's not a, a solution to not be repaying debts. And so we've invented this institution of bankruptcy to allow people to get out of that debt and to be able to remove themselves without completely destroying their lives. 
But when someone has gone bankrupt, whether it's a country or a county or an individual, and they want to re-enter into debt after that, we set up lots and lots of structures for that person. They have to go through financial counseling. They have to uh, have somebody look at their finances with them. They have to have instruction and somebody coming alongside them to make sure that those same mistakes that were made and not being repaid the debt in the first place don't happen again. And, uh, and so we have to have these years of process. Uh, sometimes bankruptcy can last seven years, right? Before we have somebody go back to that place where they're able to borrow money again. And yet sometimes we chafe at that idea of having uh, help and support when it comes to uh, remarriage. Sometimes people look at this passage in the New Testament uh, from uh, the Gospel of Mark here in chapter 10 and think uh, that uh, uh, it just and on the surface that this must be some kind of an anomaly because Jesus is supposed to be so much uh, gentler than what we read in the New Testament, that the New, uh, in the Old Testament, that somehow the Old Testament is harsher than the New Testament. And the only way that somebody can think that is if they've really never read either. Because Jesus is far more strict in his reading of the law than any place in the Old Testament. He's far more strict. What does he say the condition for adultery is? He says adultery is to have lust in our heart for another person. Right? So I won't make you all raise your hands, but that's all of us, right? We've all had lust in our hearts for another person, so we've all, according to the law of Jesus, committed adultery. Right? And this is not uh, the unforgivable sin, right? Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. Remarriage is not the unforgivable sin. Neither is uh, stealing, right? The only unforgivable sin is to not recognize our sin and to repent and turn back to the Lord. So we have to be willing uh, to repent and turn back to the Lord. And so Jesus is saying here uh, that our job is to be married. And what does he say? To hold fast. To hold fast. So when we get married, it's not just because we've said the vows or because we've, we've had the cake or because we've done any of these things that we're able to stay married. We're able to have fidelity in our marriage when we, when we hold fast to our faith. And this is a very important thing uh, that we talk about because, um, because marriage is the basic structure of our civilization. It is the, the key uh, structure and the way that we organize ourselves, our families, and then society. And if we get this wrong, it becomes terribly wrong uh, for all of us. And I can't do this by myself. I can't stand as the priest and, and I can't stand alone and have us be able to teach this truth um, alone. All of us have to participate in this teaching. This is not just my job. This is everyone's job to teach what it means to get married and what it takes to have chastity outside of marriage and what it takes to have fidelity in marriage. This is everybody's job. And it's very interesting that uh, to me that the lectionary group decided to include this passage about Jesus and the children after this teaching on divorce. On the surface, they look like two totally separate passages, right? But one follows one right after the other, and so that has to be important. Um, what are they doing? They're trying to keep the children 
from Jesus, right? As if they don't need teaching and salvation as much as the adults do. And uh, this is something that we have practiced at Jesus the Good Shepherd from the very beginning. We've never excluded the children. We've always invited them into the worship and made them a central active part of our worship uh, because they need to know the Lord and receive the sacrament and to be the focus of the kingdom of God as much as you or I. And it's up to all of us to teach the youth of our church. There are things that, that I cannot do by myself, and uh, there are real dangers that are uh, faced by our youth. The dangers of, um, of infidelity, right? The dangers of promiscuity. And so we have to be able to teach our children uh, these truths. And it's so important that all of us together uh, are looking for the opportunities to talk about with our children, who is it that you're going to marry? What kind of a person are you looking for? What are the ways in which you're going to determine if this person is the one that you should marry? What are some of the, what are some of the dangers? What are some of the dangers in, in being uh, chased and being single? What are the dangers in temptation? How are we going to fight against those? And so it's a job, not just of mine, but of the whole church to come together and to surround our children and to look for opportunities and ways to teach them how it is that they're going to be chased and how it is that they're going to have uh, fidelity and worship. And, and, and where are we going to start with that teaching? We're going to start with Genesis. We're going to start with Genesis. What is it that, that we read in Genesis? Uh, they are made male and female. And when you would have read this maybe 30 or 40 years ago, you wouldn't have thought this to be a radical teaching, right? But today the culture is attacking the idea that we are male and female, but that's where we have to start. We have to start with the idea that God created us and he created us male and female and that he did this on purpose and that his goal for us and his, his way of us to, to have support and to have health and to be able to build a, a healthy society is that we would come together in marriage, right? And that we become one flesh. And it's important for Christians to talk about the reality of that one flesh. We have to tell our children what that means. This isn't just poetry. Anybody who has ever been intimate with another person knows that our relationship with them has changed forever and our souls have changed forever. And we have to be able to tell our children what that means when we see that person, if we haven't been married to them or if we've uh, separated ourselves from them, what it means to be intimate with that person, to become one flesh with them, and then to be separated from them. And what that does to our spirits and what that does to our minds and the dangers that they face in promiscuity. And again, I can't do this by myself. We all have to, with love and compassion, looking for the right opportunity, teach our children the dangers of a life of promiscuity and what it is that we were created, how it was that we were created to bond to one another. We were made body, soul, and mind to bond with each other. And it's a powerful bond. It's not the priest that makes that bond. It's not the uh, matrimonial vows that make that bond. It's, it's made uh, because that's how we were created. And so when we come together and we teach our children, we have uh, several principles that we have to remember uh, when we're teaching them and when we're supporting one another and when we're teaching one another about, about marriage and about how to stay in fidelity. 
And those, I think, are found very beautifully in the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews says in verse 1, we have to pay attention closer to what we've heard. Right? You notice that? We, we hear these gospel messages and we say, oh yeah, oh I forgot that Jesus said that. I forgot the scriptures teach that. We have to pay closer attention to what we've heard. We have to hold them closer to ourselves and to our teaching. And we have to know that we are going to um, escape a just retribution. In other words, in verse 2, there are consequences for our actions. So first, we have to keep the teaching of the church close to ourselves and to our children. And then we have to teach them, look, there are consequences for our actions. There's going to be consequences to not participating in chastity. There's going to be consequences for not having fidelity in marriage. And these are the consequences that I myself have suffered. There is no more powerful message than sharing that personal testimony. And then we have to teach them what love is. Because the culture is teaching something else. The culture is teaching that love is this fluffy thing. It's all joy and hearts and kitty cats and puppies and everybody being so happy. Love is cleaning up after somebody in the middle of the night. That's love. And if you don't know that it's sacrifice, you don't know what love is. And Jesus teaches us exactly what love is. For it was hitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. So the creator of the universe, right? We're learning just exactly who Jesus is. Creation was made for him, and creation was made by him. So creator God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, did what? To bring us to glory, he made us perfect through his own suffering. So he was willing to suffer for us. It is through suffering that He brings us to glory. So in other words, we are not going to experience love in its true sense until we are willing to suffer for others, until we're willing to lay down our lives for others. And when we do that, when we're willing to suffer, when we're willing to deny ourselves, then we're able to participate in the love of Christ. We are all sanctified by that one source. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we can't be naive about temptation. We can't tell our children, just be chaste and there's not going to be temptation. We can't tell them, just get married and then there's not going to be temptation. We can't tell them, go through divorce and then there's not going to be temptation. Guess what? We're all tempted all the time and we have to be honest about that and we have to support one another in teaching and in fellowship and building one another up to know what are we going to do in temptation what's our plan for that how are we going to hold fast to one another how are we going to hold fast to those whom we have committed our lives what's our plan for that we can't get into marriage and not have a plan we can't be in fellowship as the church and not have a plan. Of course, many of you know that uh, one of my heroes is uh, Dave Ramsey, who has helped literally millions of people get out of debt and stay out of debt, and many come back from bankruptcy. And he's able to do that, I think, for several different reasons, but one is that over and over again, the man gets on public radio 
and talks to 20 million people and tells them about his own experience with bankruptcy, about how that happened to him, and about all of the mistakes that he made. And nobody could do that job unless they were willing to share their own mistakes in that raw, vulnerable way that he does it. It's the only way that we help each other, is if we're willing to say, these are the mistakes that I've made, and these are the consequences that I've experienced, and this is what I'm doing now to avoid those mistakes. These are the changes that I've made so that I can avoid those mistakes. And this, I believe, is our job as the church. is especially with our youth, but with one another, to be willing to share our mistakes. And to show the grace that we've experienced, to share the mercy and the grace that we have experienced, and to talk with clarity and boldness the steps that we are taking to avoid those mistakes again, to be willing to suffer for those that we love, to be willing to participate in the suffering and fellowship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so that we may have healthy, healthy marriages and families for the renewal of our church and the world.